Turn with me to Romans 9. Romans 9, we're going to read through verse 23. We continue on in our series on Calvinism, also known as TULIP. We take on the topic of unconditional election, as you know, the least controversial topic in Calvinism. Romans 9, here is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises. Whose are the fathers from whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as the descendants. This is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, there was also Rebekah, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. But on God, who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common? What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to meditate upon these words. Help us to study them carefully and to analyze what you are communicating. And once we have understood it, Lord, grant us hearts and minds that are submissive to it. That we would not reply against you, but that we would receive truth with humble adoration. And that then, Father, our lives would be framed according to that which you have revealed here in these inspired words. So teach us, Holy Spirit, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, I was having a private debate and discussion with a pastor who was of the Arminian persuasion, theologically, 
very opposed to Calvinism he was. He said many harsh things about it. Among them was that all Calvinists are unloving and unevangelistic and are basically divisive people. And in the course of our discussion about Calvinism and about the doctrine of election particularly, as we are going to be analyzing it here from Romans chapter 9, uh, he said, this is how I conceive of Calvinism and your Calvinistic view of election. Uh, your Calvinism and your God and your concept of election are like a man who's, who's on a boat in distress at sea. And uh, a helicopter who's coming to rescue them uh, shouts from above and it lowers a rope down to that man who is standing on the bow of the ship in distress. And the rope is lowered just above his head. And the man in the helicopter cries out to jump up and grab that rope and you'll be safe. But he says the, the problem with that is, is your God nailed that man's feet to the boat. And he cannot jump. And so all the while he's in the helicopter above holding out the promise of rescue and of life that he knows that man cannot jump up and receive rescue because he has nailed his feet to the boat. That's your God, that's Calvinism, and that's what I think of when I think of election as you teach it. He says Arminian election is very different, though. The Arminian view of election is that the man is standing in the boat. The helicopter drops down the rope with a hammer right within the grasp of the person who is in distress in the boat. The man grabs the hammer, unprizes his feet, and climbs up the rope to safety. In other words, salvation has to do with man's free choice. What we're going to see here as we look at the Word of God, however, is that the illustration is really uh, completely out of accord with the Bible because uh, here is what Paul says as he deals with the doctrine of election. He summarizes uh, what we confess as Calvinists about this uh, rather unsavory truth. Verse 18, he says, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. That's the biblical doctrine of election. God wills that some receive mercy, and God wills that others receive hardening. That's what Paul says. God chooses some, and He doesn't choose others. That's what the Bible says, and that's what we need to investigate here this morning. Unconditional election. Meaning that God sovereignly chooses some individuals to salvation in Christ in eternity past. Let's look at this hard truth as Paul develops it. And what I want you to see here is that the Apostle Paul himself realizes that this point is itself very controversial and difficult as people hear it. And I want us to see how Paul appreciates that that great difficulty in verse 14. I hope your Bibles are open so you see it for yourself. The Apostle Paul says, well, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? 
You see, the Apostle Paul begins his exposition of this doctrine of election here that we're going to examine this morning uh, by anticipating that people are going to have problems with it. And he says, is there any injustice with God? And basically what he's saying is, that, is, is God unfaithful? Is God unfaithful to His promise? Is He unfaithful to His character? Because He chooses some and not others. And what you have to understand is the Apostle Paul is looking backwards to something he's just said here in verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You see, that's where the rub of the argument comes in. Uh, the Apostle Paul has just said that God excludes some. He excludes Esau. He chooses Jacob. He pours out his love upon one and he hates the other. And, and the Apostle Paul says, I know that you're going to have a problem with that. So he asks he the question, is there injustice with God? Is God unfair? Because He loves one and chooses one. And He hates one and condemns them. And that's what we need to unravel this morning. Is God unjust in doing that? Let's, let's, let's take a moment here to place... Um, Verses 14 through 18, where we want to concentrate this morning. Let's put those in their context and see what's going on here. Verse 14, Paul is um, looking back over things he has said. We know that because of the beginning question of verse 14. What shall we say then? That that indicates to us that Paul is looking backwards to an argument that he began to develop back in verse 6. And I, I want you to see that first sentence in verse 6. This is a problem that Paul is dealing with here. Paul's doctrine of election emerges out of a real historical problem. It says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Hmm, what does he mean by that? It's not as if the word of God has failed. I read the entire chapter because I wanted us to get a sense of what Paul was grappling with here in Romans 9. And what he is principally grappling with is this question of why has Israel failed to embrace the Messiah? Why has Israel failed to believe in Jesus Christ? After all, he is the long-awaited for, the promised Messiah, the one in whom all of the covenant promises would find their fulfillment. And he's tackling the problem of Jewish unbelief. And Paul must have heard this before, but he is taking on a a question which stands behind this whole issue. Well, If the Jews aren't believing in the Christ, and Jesus is the true Messiah, then hasn't God failed in His promises? Hasn't God failed? Hasn't His promises failed? After all, He made promises to Abraham that uh, He would be a God unto him, that He would supply him with a seed which was more numerous than the stars of the heaven, that He would uh, grant him a kingdom and a people, and all kinds of blessings and promises, and all those were to be realized in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And now that that Messiah has come, and and there is wide-scale rejection of that Messiah and unbelief among the Jews, it looks like God failed. It looked like His promise failed. Now, this is not simply a question for Jews to think about. This is not merely an academic dispute. 
you shouldn't say this morning, well, I am not a Jew, so I have no a stake in this issue. Because frankly, you do. This is all about whether God can be trusted when He promises something. And that matters to you because I want you to see a great promise uh, that Paul says that we have as Christians at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you want to believe in that promise? Do you want to grasp hold of that promise by faith and to say that there's absolutely nothing that can separate me from the love of my God because He loves me and He sent His Son to die for my sins and Jesus at the cross? You see, the problem is, is if God was unfaithful to His promises to the Jews, you have no reason to believe that He'll be faithful in His promises to you. That's why this topic matters this morning. To all of us. If God is a promise-breaking God, you have no hope of salvation. And if you have no hope of salvation, you might as well play golf on Sunday mornings. Or whatever it is you like to do. Paul takes up this question here now. He says, well, has God failed? And look at his response immediately in 6b. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now this is going to become sort of a, a complicated argument. We're going to go over a, a lot of verses in, in uh, record time here. So just follow along with my explanation, okay? Uh, basically he's saying, no, the word of God has not failed because they're not all Israel who are Israel. In other words, Paul distinguishes. He says, yes, there's the, uh, there are the people of Israel. They are biological descendants of Abraham. But he does something uh, important here. He makes a distinction between those who are biological descendants of Abraham and those who are the true Israel. And basically he's going to argue that the promises that God made to Abraham are to the true Israel. And he's going to argue that not everyone who is a biological descendant of Abraham, not everyone who has Abraham's DNA, in other words, is part of the true Israel and therefore recipient of the covenant promises. Notice how he unfolds that in verse 7. He says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Through Isaac shall your descendants be named. In other words, he appeals to the historical situation of Abraham's own children. Lots to deal with here to set this up, but basically it's as simple as this. Abraham had uh, Ishmael by another woman, not his wife Sarah, but through Hagar. Ishmael uh, was fully a biological child of Abraham. He also had through Sarah, some years later, uh, Isaac. You have a situation where both Ishmael and Isaac are both fully children of Abraham... And yet, Paul says, the descendants will be named through Isaac. If you know your Bible, you know that Ishmael was not a part of the kingdom of God. And that Isaac received 
the promises of the covenant. So we have here Paul pointing out that within uh, Abraham's immediate family, there was this distinguishing of Israel. There was true Israel, they were the ones who were sons of the promise, and then there was biological descendants who were equally Abraham's children. Now he goes to another example in verses 10 through 13. This is Rebekah. Uh, as the mother, and Isaac is the father. Isaac's son is the father of two boys, Jacob and Esau. And he says uh, that, verse 11, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as written, Jacob of my love, Esau by hated. Again, Paul is unfolding this principle that within Israel, there is true Israel, and then there are others who are merely descendants, and the ones who are merely descendants don't have uh, the promises. They are not given unto them. They are given to the true Israel. And he shows from this historical case, now, Jacob is a son of Isaac, and Esau is a son of Isaac, and yet, one receives the covenant promises, and Paul's answer for that is because God elected one and not the other. And it was told to Isaac and Rebekah in advance, before they were born, that God was going to bless one of them and not the other. Verse 12 is the prophecy that Rebekah received. The older will serve the younger. Paul says, Rebekah received that in advance. The decree of election was unfolded to her that God had chosen one, that is Jacob, whom God would set his love on, his favor upon, who would be the recipients of the covenant promises, and Esau would not be. That's the doctrine of election right there. God sovereignly determines to give his grace to one and not the other. It's the same truth that is taught in Ephesians, chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, And He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of His will. Here is the hard truth. The Bible emphatically and clearly and unambiguously teaches that God chooses individuals. He chooses individuals in eternity past. He chooses individuals in eternity past in Jesus Christ. And He does that according to His sovereign will. That's election. It's exactly how the Bible teaches it. God chooses some individuals to the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ and not others. That brings us back to verse 14 where I said we wanted to be. Do you see now why this question comes up? Is God unjust? Is God unfair? He loves Jacob, but he hates Esau, and yet they're both descendants of Abraham, to whom the promise was made. Is God unfair that he chooses one? Oh, I don't know if you're indifferent to that question or not this morning, because it doesn't really matter to you. But it it ought to matter to everybody. 
One reason why people don't like the Reformed faith and Calvinism and, frankly, the God of the Bible is because election is a very hard doctrine. God sovereignly just chooses some and He does in others. Look at Paul's response to that. He says, no, God's not unjust. May it never be. The, the, the most emphatic way you can say no way in the original Greek. No way. God's not unjust. And here's his answer to that. Here's his explanation beginning in verse 15. He quotes from Exodus 33:19, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Paul's response to the question, is God unjust because he elects, chooses one and not another? And Paul's answer is to quote scripture, to, to quote the highest authority possible, not to consult religious experts, not to take opinion polls, um, not to uh, figure out what squares with common sense or reason or conceptions of fairness that men may have. He quotes the Bible. He quotes Exodus 33. And he says, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now what Paul doesn't quote is the first part of the verse, which is God saying to Moses in Exodus 33, I myself will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Then he goes on to say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now stop right there and think about this. In the Bible, to proclaim the name of something is to say what the essence of something is. It's to reveal the character of something. The name reveals the character. So when God says to Moses, I will proclaim my name to you, colon, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. In other words, he's saying, this is who I am. This is my character and my being. Sovereign mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now, Paul says in verse 16 now, looking in your Bible, he he draws out of that something, a principle, based upon God's declaration of his character, which is he has sovereign mercy. He has the right to show mercy to any individual that he desires. This is what Paul says. He says, this is what it means. So then, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. You see, he picks uh, the human capacities here. Willing and desiring. Uh, Those things which point out uh, man's capacities and abilities. The best of them. His choosing and his acting. And he says, salvation has nothing to do with your choosing or with your acting. Completely destroys that Armenian pastor's analogy, by the way, which the rope with the hammers lowered down, the guy grabs it, uh, un, uh, he disconnects his feet that are nailed down to the bottom of the ship, and climbs away to freedom on account of the exercise of his free will. Actually, uh, Paul says it's, it, it's absolutely the opposite. God has mercy, that's why you get saved. 
God sovereignly chooses to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. I want to come back and apply that in a moment. So let's just leave that thought there. Well, let's state it really clearly. The doctrine of election is stated here very unambiguously by Paul. It's not that God sees that somebody will desire it. It's not that God sees somebody will work really hard in order to get saved. And then, based upon him seeing that man will do those kinds of good things, that God says, well, okay, I'll appoint you to be a part of my kingdom and salvation too. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely the opposite. God sovereignly determines who he will have mercy on. That is the doctrine of election. But Paul teaches another difficult truth here, which is the companion truth to individual election unto salvation, and that is God is sovereign in reprobation to wrath. Look at verse 17. Paul here is continuing to respond to the question, is God unfair? Because he chose Jacob unto salvation, and he hated Esau. Now God has, or Paul has made the point that, no, God's not unfair because it's his right to show mercy to whoever he wants to. It's a sovereign action. But now he takes up the question of whether it's unfair that God hated Esau. That's what I want you to see here in verse 17. Paul takes up the question of whether it's unfair that God hated Esau. And didn't choose him unto salvation. This is Paul's response. For the scripture says again, Paul goes to the highest court of appeal. He goes to the highest authority and that is the scripture. And he quotes now from Exodus 9.16. These are God's words to Pharaoh through Moses. For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God speaks to Pharaoh here. And God says, I raised you up. You couldn't accent the sovereignty of God any more powerfully than in that verb. That God just plucked Pharaoh and raised him up on the stage of history. And installs him on the throne of Egypt. For the purpose of God showing his power. And all of those plagues which he visited upon Egypt because Pharaoh refused to submit to the voice of God and let Israel go from their slavery in Egypt. But now look at verse 18. Here's what Paul says we're to learn from that example. He says, So then, You see that? He's drawing a conclusion for what he has just said. He's just said that God in his sovereignty raised up Pharaoh to display his power. And now he says, so then, he has mercy on whom he desires. That summarizes what he just said in verse 15 and 16, right? God is sovereign to have mercy on whoever he desires. The word there means wills. Whoever God wills to have mercy on, He does. But now notice the second part. And He hardens whom He desires. You see that? This sounds really unfair now. This, remember, is Paul's answer 
to the question, is God unfair because he chose Jacob and he hated Esau? And Paul's answer to that is, it's not unfair that God hated Esau because God sovereignly chooses to harden certain people. That's a really hard truth. Hardens there means to make somebody spiritually insensitive and unresponsive to the will of God. He hardened Pharaoh. You can't tone that down. If God is sovereign in the first part of this verse... Uh, showing mercy to whoever he wants to, and we all want to believe that because we all want to be saved by the sovereignty of God. There's no hope without it. You can't tone it down in the second part of the verse in verse 18 and say that it's some sort of soft permission or the fault's all in man. Or No, it says he hardens, he inflicts, sovereignly inflicts hardness of heart. Now, the fact that that's what is meant by it is so clear from verse 19. You see how Paul's a good pastor, by the way? This is an aside note. You see how he's a good pastor? He takes the truth and he explains it to God's people. And he anticipates that as he explains it, they're going to have questions. And they're going to say, man, that's hard to understand. Or, wow, that doesn't seem fair. Whatever reactions we may have, he anticipates that. He's just taught this truth. Now that God sovereignly determines to show mercy to one and hardness to the other, the fact that Paul is actually saying God is sovereign in hardening the heart of those who he desires to harden hearts. You have this response in verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault who resists his will? You see, the objector is saying, well, why is God mad at me? He made me this way. You follow? The objector is saying, I'm just doing what God made me to be, which is to be hardened and to be reprobate. See, he understands, the the objection understands uh, verse 18, that God's sovereign in giving mercy and sovereign in hardening. He understands it. He's saying, God made me this way. And Paul responds in verse 20 by saying, shut up. It doesn't literally say that in the original, but that's basically what it says. It says, shut up. Who are you? You are a clay pot. You are a piece of dirt. You are a piece of dirt. That's literally what's going on here. He says, if God wants to uh, mold one lump of clay for honorable use and another for common use, what difference does it make to you? He's the potter. He is the creator. He is the sovereign. He is God. He can do what he will with his own. That's, That's Paul's answer to this guy who's saying, well, I'm just doing what God made me to be. So there. He says, shut up. God made you however He wanted to make you. You have no right to respond to Him in such arrogance. He is the Creator. And then Paul gives the ultimate answer now for why it is that God would choose one and not another. We find that in verses 22 and 23. I'm going to give you a translation that helps unfold what's going on here. It would basically read like this. 
Why is it that God chooses one to an honorable use and the other to a common use? Why is it that God chooses one to election unto salvation and one to hardness of heart and to reprobation and condemnation? Why is it that he does that? And the answer that Paul gives in verses 22 and 23 is this. Because God determined to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, and therefore he endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that... That's how verse 23 would read. So that he might demonstrate the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared him for glory. You see what Paul does here? He doesn't unravel the secrets of God's decree and say, uh, give us the reasons for why God chooses one and not another. He gives us the big picture purpose. He says, the reason why God chooses one into salvation and hardens another under condemnation and reprobation is because God wants to display His character. That's the answer. God wants to display His character. God has determined to display who He is so that all will see. Do you see that? This is not about you. This is not about us. This is not about humanity. Paul is saying it's about God. This is why people have a problem with the doctrine because it's not about us. It's not about men. It's not about creatures. It is really about God. And if you're going to bend your mind around this, you have to begin with where the Scriptures do. God. God determines to show mercy on one. God determines to harden the other. Because God is radically God-centered. Because God is more important in His mind than we are. And because God wants to show who He is. Now that may not be a satisfying answer for everyone, and I completely understand that. That's God's answer. What are the implications of this then? What are the implications of what we just quickly went through? And I know you're going to have questions, and so we're going to have an opportunity for question and answer after the service today. As we always do. What are the implications of this? And the first implication of this is that God uh, is entirely sovereign in salvation. God is entirely sovereign in salvation. Salvation is 100% of the Lord's sovereign mercy. That's it. It's not based on anything in the creature. Salvation is based upon God's determination to show mercy. And by the way, mercy means to give help to somebody who is in distress. That's where He finds us. In distress, in our sins, in our depravity. And God sovereignly chooses to show mercy on some. It's the same truth that is spelled out in Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What does it mean to, be, to say you're saved by grace? It means you're saved by sovereign electing grace of God. Selection explains why it is that there is anyone who ever gets saved. You ever wonder why you got saved? Do you ever wonder why it was you? All you got to do is think of who you are. 
what you have done, what thoughts you think, and immediately you should be asking, why was it me? There's no reason why God should choose you. It's a surprise. And that's how Luther liked to explain it. He said, election explains the surprise of faith. You see, if everybody's in sin and everybody's totally depraved, if everybody is dead spiritually, enslaved to sin, and following their own lusts and desires, it is a surprise that anybody gets saved. How did it happen? Because God determined to show mercy. He's sovereign. Because of election. First of all, salvation is 100% of the Lord. Secondly, this doctrine of election, this biblical doctrine of election, must not be rejected because it sounds unfair or doesn't match human common sense perceptions of what's right or wrong. A professor of mine told me, um, told our class, in fact, one time that he began his lecture on the doctrine of election by asking all of the students to raise their hands to particular questions he asked. And his first question that he asked of the students was, uh, do Calvinists believe in the doctrine of election? And everybody kind of chuckled and laughed and everybody raised their hand. And then he said, do Roman Catholics believe in the doctrine of election? And uh, fewer hands went up that time. And then he asked, uh, do Arminians believe in the doctrine of election? And very few hands went up that time. Excuse me. And he said the answer is all of the above. Arminians, Roman Catholics, Calvinists, everybody who reads the Bible believes in election because it's all over the Bible. Do you all confess the same doctrine of election? No. Is that because the Bible's unclear? We'll go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 16. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Look at verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he desires. Does that sound unambiguous? Does that sound like it's got a whole lot of legal loopholes in it? No. You see, the reason why we don't all, why all Christians don't confess the doctrine of election that's in the Bible is because they don't like the one that's in the Bible. And they make it conform to their own sense of right and wrong. That is to reject the Word of God. That is to substitute divine authority with your own sense of right and wrong. With you. You cannot reject the biblical doctrine of election even if it feels unfair. It doesn't sound right. Because this is the one that's in the Bible. And see, that's what that pastor was doing. He was substituting his own doctrine of election for the one that was in the Word because his sounded more fair to him than Romans 9.16. It doesn't depend on him who wills. It doesn't depend on him who runs. But on God. The third implication this morning is that you're to focus on the obvious promise here. Some people reject the doctrine of election as it's spelled out in the Bible because it makes them feel very uncomfortable. They say, well, how can I be sure then if I believe the promise that I'll be saved? 
after all, I can't really know whether I'm elect. And I don't want it to be complicated that way. I just want to believe the promise and have assurance of my salvation. And the only way for me to do that is to get out my scissors and cut out Romans chapter 9. Well, I would say to you this morning, that's exactly the opposite purpose of Romans chapter 9. Remember what the purpose of Romans chapter 9 is? The purpose of Romans chapter 9 is to explain why some are believing. Why are there some Jews who aren't hardened to the gospel? Why are there some Jews who are believing in the Christ? And Paul says the reason why some are believing is because they've been appointed to believe. He's not discouraging people in Romans chapter 9 who already think that they believe and want to believe and trust in the promises, but then they're sitting there going, hmm, I'm not sure whether I'm elect. Can I really have assurance? Oh, he's explaining why some don't believe and why some do believe. He says, some don't believe because they're not elect, but some are believing, and that's the point of this. Some are believing, and the reason why they are believing is because God chose them. He shows the invisible structure behind faith. This morning, people of God, you're not to doubt the promises. You're not to say, oh, I'm not sure whether they're for me because I'm not sure whether I'm elect. You are to embrace the promises and the people who embrace the promises are the people who actually are elect because that's what the elect do. They exercise faith in the Word of God and embrace the promise. Fourth and finally, we'll be done. The decree of election produces not arrogance, not arrogance, but humility and adoration of God. The decree of election, let me repeat this again, because this is a common accusation. It produces arrogance. It does not. The decree of election is to produce humility and the adoration of God. The canons of Dort say this, the sense and certainty of this election affords to the children of God additional matter for daily humiliation before Him, for adoring the depths of His mercies, for cleansing themselves. And, regard, and rendering grateful returns of ardent love to Him. You see that? It does not produce arrogance. It produces humility, as the Apostle Paul says of the elect in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and following. He says that God has called the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world, the base things of the world, the despised things of the world, the nothing things of the world. Guess what? Paul is describing you. Paul is describing the elect. And he is going out of his way to say that there is nothing in you that should make you exalt yourself. There's nothing in you that makes you, should make yourself boastful or proud. And that's the reason why God chose you. He says, this is what you are. You are weak. You are foolish. You are base. You are despised. You are literally no thing. And God in His sovereign grace chose you. There can be nothing worse than a Calvinist who's arrogant, boastful, and proud. 
We should be the most humble, loving, kind, charitable people under the sun. Because we know that God chose us, people like you and me, who were weak, foolish, base, despised, and no thing. You can't be arrogant and believe that. And if we are arrogant, may God chasten us so we are humble. You cannot be arrogant. God has shown mercy. It doesn't lead to arrogance, but humility and adoration. When I hear those words that this doctrine of election are to lead us to adoring the depths of His mercies, I cannot help but think of that beautiful hymn by Isaac Watts, How Sweet and Awful is the Place, where he says, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with grateful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? And he goes on in the next stanza to say, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, when thousands made a wretched choice and rather starved than come? That is the only response to the doctrine of election. If you are a believer this morning and you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you have assurance and comfort that when you die, you're going to heaven to be with the Lord forever. The only response that you can give is, Lord, why was I a guest? Why me? Why was I made to hear? It wasn't because I ran. It wasn't because I willed. It wasn't because I worked. It wasn't because I earned. Lord, why was I a guest? You do much to develop a heart of worship and reverence to the Lord if you repeat those words to yourself. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice? The only answer is what Paul says in verse 16. It's not on the man who wills. It's not on the man who runs. But it's of God who shows mercy. May our hearts meditate upon that. Sovereign election. The sovereign determination of an omnipotent God to save foolish, weak, despised base no things that's why you were made to hear his voice